Give it up, baby. I've studied all your moves. Yeah, study this! <laughs> What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Forbidden Technique podcast. Myself, your host, Silas Martin, my co-host, as always, Christian Reynolds. And today, we've got a couple of UFC cards to talk about, but most notably, a preposterously stacked uh, pay-per-view coming up this weekend. We've got double title fights and an absolute just shitload of uh, cool and fun fights to get into, as well as a decent fight night uh, just coming off of last weekend uh, with... A meaningful and controversial main event that were that uh, bears discussion. So uh, let's just get right on into this card. Um, UFC 276, Israel Adesanya defending the middleweight championship for the, what is this, like fifth or sixth time at this point? Something like that. And I got to be honest, I came into doing tape fully ready to pick Jared Cannonier because uh, it would be cool, and he's looked okay recently. And then I watched Jared Cannonier versus Rob Whitaker, and I was like, well, I mean, he's, I mean Jared Cannonier is probably going to lose this fight. I don't know, what, what, what do you make of J- Jared Cannonier's chances against Israel Adesanya, Christian? I, I, I had a similar situation where I wanted to be able to pick Jared, but I, I don't know, it just feels like wishful thinking. He's not super deep, and he's he's struggled even against, like, like tactically, he couldn't really figure out how to reliably fuck up Kelvin Gaslam. And, you know, he he did win the fight, but it's just not like a, a great look if you're about to be fighting the best defensive fighter in the division. You know, Izzy's not perfect defensively, but he's definitely good there. And and he's not lazy. So it, I can't see him taking Kanir lightly as well, which is something that you always got to worry about in Izzy fights because he's just prone to fight like a shitty fight if he's able to get away with it. And I don't think he'd be able to get away with it. So I think he's actually going to like put on a bit of performance and finish Cannonier kind of mid midway through the fight, like maybe round three. Yeah, we we really might be due one of the uh, actually uh, fun and dynamic Israel Adesanya performances that that happens every now and again in between these kind of uh, just really tepid decision wins. Um, but Jared Cannonier, uh, while he doesn't necessarily have a ton of depth of a striker and any tools that you look at and you're immediately like, oh yeah, this is going to be a nightmare for Israel Adesanya, he is uh, focused and adaptable and can come in with a few very specific ideas that he's tailored strategically towards his opponent. And he just has like absolutely psychotic self-assurance that if he sticks to those things, then they will, will work. Uh, he was constantly just getting jabbed clean in the mouth while on one leg trying to set up low kicks against Robert Whittaker. Uh, but he still landed a fuckload of low kicks against Robert Whittaker. He was just like, Robert Whittaker hates being low kicked. I'm just, I'm just going to do that. No matter what happens, I'm, I'm going to kick him in the leg really fucking hard. And it definitely kept him in that fight. And, you know, he still hurt Rob uh, late in the third. So I think he's going to come in with some good ideas. And, you know, he's just, he's so patient and organic. And, you know, he he is creative about finding just like singular counter openings. 
So, like, I can see him, like, kind of annoying Israel Adesanya early and, like, maybe maybe hurting him and putting him on skates once. Um, but I just don't know that he'll have another, uh, like, layer to go to if Israel Adesanya is able to f- figure out his initial adjustments, which, which at this point, I, I'm, not, I'm not even sure what I think Jared Cannonier is going to come into this fight with. Like, I mean, I, I was saying he should just come out southpaw and just do hand fighting into spamming straight shots to the body and there's, like, no conceivable way he could possibly lose. But I don't know. What do you think he should do? Uh, straights to the body and yeah. low kick on exits. But he can't be too predictable about either because Izzy's one of the guys in the division that will actually, like, read that. And so, I don't know. He needs. I think he needs to do that and then build into just trying to club him with overhands as, as he gets to the fence, but I also don't think is reliable enough at getting people to the fence and fucking them up from there. Like, he, like he's not very much of a ring general. He more just finds, like, a positioning advantage midway through an exchange and then cracks someone with the counter. But Izzy's not going to just be hanging around to get countered. So, I, I think he's going to make Izzy look really good for large stretches of the fight, even if Cannonier somehow wins. But also, maybe I'm completely wrong and Izzy will be just, like, terrified by a power threat like Cannoneer and will just be very tepid and kind of keep him on the outside. But I, I really can't see Cannoneer not forcing Izzy to look good. Yeah, I don't know. Now that you say it, this really could be one of those ones where Israel just, like, weirdly gets into his own head uh, and buys way too much into his own bullshit because he does seem to have a lot of respect for Jared Cannoneer and he seems to have his best performances against guys who he thinks are bums, even like regardless of them being quality opponents or not. Um, <clears throat> uh, but I have also just seen Jared Cannon here too many times just being neutralized by uh, someone who can like stick to a concert, concerted jab and deny exchanges and like, you know, deal with a low kicking threat, even if it's, even if it is working. Uh, yeah, I kind of think Israel... You know, he, he he can win that long-range jabbing match, and if Cannonier really forces the issue, then he can probably, um, you know, go deeper in exchanges and find counters that will end up finishing Cannonier. And he, you know, has a kicking advantage and good kick defense. So, uh, like, pretty open and shut for Israel Adesanya now that I really get into it. But, um, I don't know. Cannonier's dangerous. Anything could happen. Okay, so, uh, co-main event, we got the trilogy match between a defending featherweight champion, Alexander Volkanovsky, and former champion, Max Holloway. Probably the top two pound-for-pound fighters in the sport of MMA today. Um, incredibly compelling trilogy. Uh, but shall we just uh, be upfront, Christian, about the fact that we both think that the second fight was a flagrant robbery that um, kind of totally fucked up the trajectory of both this rivalry and Max Holloway's career? Yes. Um People can call us crazy, but in my opinion, the second Max Volk fight is wider in favor of Max than the first fight is in favor of Volkanovsky. And, you know, of course, the first fight, it, it, it's like less competitive, maybe, but like Max does well and stays in the fight throughout, while Volk kind of got fucked up really badly two rounds in the second fight. So, you know, in one round, like in, in just the first two rounds, Max did more damage to Volkanovski in the second fight than Volkanovski did to Max in the entire first fight. And I'm saying this as someone that is a, like a massive Volkanovski fan. I'm not, not doing it to discredit Volkanovski. I'm doing it to give credit to Max Holloway. 
Because, you know, it, it was a rematch. You know, the third fight, I think, is going to be the real deciding factor in, like, who is the better fighter. Because, right, to me, they're 1-1, and they've both only won by decision. And Max is a, a lot more dynamic of an adjuster. So if he's going to make some adjustments, he's going to fuck you up real bad in the second fight. Like, I just feel like Max does really well in rematches. And Volkanovski, of course, does as well. He, he worked his way into the fight and somehow got a decision in the second one. But I don't know. This is probably the fight I'm most excited for, but it's also hard to think of things that to like talk about because it's just, I know it's going to be one of the best fights of the year and maybe one of the best fights ever. So like waiting to see it before I, I talk a, like in depth about it feels smart because you know you can infer things that both fighters should do but we haven't seen them fight each other a third time we we just know how their dynamics work out now like max has kind of worked out how to get around low kicks volks figured out how to like work his jabbing game against max while max has figured out the low kicks um then he's also figured out how to start working his low kicks back into the matchup while max is just trying to figure out how to mitigate them more while also getting boxing offense off I think Max is pretty like clearly set to be kicking the body now. He he had a lot of success like front snap kicks and like hopping kicks and then just the power body kicks that he was landing in both fights. Volkanovski was doing a lot of work in the second fight, just tricking Max into like leaving his arm out and then overhanding him. Uh, he was finding a lot of left hooks on Max Holloway, and also Volks looked the best that he's looked since they last fought, and so has Max. So. I really can't see a way that it isn't a ridiculous fight. Like, I think it might be the highest action one of all of them because it's it's the trilogy, you know? Like, you expect the third fight to be the crescendo. What do you think about it? Oh, I mean, yeah, it's it's fascinating. I'm just glad that we get this fight a third time. And I really hope that Max Holloway gets this one, not, not just because of the reasons that we've laid out and me being a huge Max Holloway fan. Um, just, uh, it would be a real shame if, um, you know, if we have another just amazing, compelling fight of the year, technical war, you know, all-time great fight that any fighter should be studying, um, but then like a close decision goes to Volkanovski and then we just never get this fight again. Because, you know, being a fan of like Muay Thai and kickboxing, those are sports where like, if there's if there's a meaningful high-level matchup that happens, it's going to happen like fucking seven times. And, you know, you know, part of that is just because of, like, the structure of those sports, but also just because I think they value more the importance of these kind of matchups and just the idea that, like, two really high-level fighters are going to continue to make adjustments over a series, even with, like, five fights or more. You know, imagine if Marat Gregorian had never gotten that fifth fight with Sitachai. But, but anyway, you know, the actual matchup itself, yeah, like you said, I, I just have no idea what to expect because both guys are, you know, incredibly good uh, adjusters, um, both in terms of coming in with specific preparations and figuring out what they need to do over the course of a fight. The first two fights, to me, looks like Volk just came in with a bunch of like really well-suited reads that Max just wasn't ready for, but kind of started to figure out and and got more into the fight in the last couple of rounds, but it was a, it was too little too late and still a very clear clear win for Volk. And then in the second fight, it was kind of like Max built on everything that happened in the first fight and came in with a brilliant strategy and 
took away so many of Volkanovsky's weapons and fucked him up real bad. And again, Volkanovsky started to get more back into that fight as it went deep, but I still think it's really difficult to actually score it for him since there's two incredibly clear rounds for Max and then and then there's three kind of close rounds that it mostly seems like were decided by uh, Volk's wrestling offense, which shouldn't actually have really scored at all because he doesn't really sustain any kind of damage or establish any length of positional control. And you, it, those exchanges usually resulted on Max breaking with strikes. So, you know, if you're scoring offense, then Max was, you know, you're scoring off of those uh, wrestling exchanges. And then I'm just, I don't know how uh, instructive uh, the two fights that both guys have had since fighting each other last after this matchup. You know, you've got Max Holloway uh, easily destroying Calvin Cater and looking the best he's ever looked um, in, you know, an incredible performance against a very good opponent, but a style that allowed Max Holloway to look his best and he still, you know, took shots in that fight that, uh, that could have gone a lot worse for him if he wasn't Max Holloway. Um, and then it kind of seemed like, you know, everyone, including Max Holloway, just assumed that he was going to easily run through Yaya Rodriguez. And then Yaya Rodriguez low-kicked him 9,000 times in the first round. And Max Holloway had a, like, uncharacteristically kind of gritty fight that, you know, people say, but the, we talk about uh, that fight being kind of a struggle for Max and Yaya kind of overperforming. But it was still like a 50-44 for Max, really. Yeah, the best you could do is give like 49-45. Yeah, maybe. Per... Uh, you know, and then you've got Volkanovski kind of easily destroying Brian Ortega, but nearly getting submitted by him. Like, okay. That, that, yeah, that sounds like a thing that happens. Um, and then uh, easily destroying a, a very old Korean zombie. Like you've got some really impressive performances from both guys uh, against you know top elite fighters in the division, but where, and dramatically different matchups than each other too. Yeah, where where does any of that leave us in terms of where both guys come into this this matchup and the adjustments that both guys are able to make? Um, you know, given the time that they've spent together, it's uh, I, I honestly you know they have definitely thought of stuff that I haven't. So I'm still just going to pick Max Holloway because I thought he won the last fight and I need to see a new layer from Volk to expect anything else to happen, but I'm sure that it's there. So I don't don't fucking know. Yeah, I think the only instructive thing to take from their fights against other people since they last fought is that they both look crisp as fuck and like they like evolved a lot since their last fight with each other. Like Max recognized, okay, I just got to fucking like put the numbers out. Cause you know, the cater fight, some people said, Oh, it's a bit of vintage max, but it was, it was like max being max Holloway, but it was the best he's ever looked like he was putting out more volume than he's ever put out. He started way sooner. It was strategically a pretty brilliant fight. His positioning was one crazier shot selection than we've ever seen from him. Yeah. Yeah. Like he, he brought out fucking the, the, Muay Thai Max, which is something you always love to see. Bulk had the best boxing he's ever had in his last fight. Admittedly, like a, a kind of a layup, but still, like it was the best that Volks looked, in my opinion, like just pure performance wise 
And then the Ortega fight, he looked phenomenal and kind of didn't have much difficulty except for later in the fight where uh, he, he coasted a little bit in the last round. But, you know, you can coast if you just clearly won the fight, you know. And then he didn't get fucked up later on. He he just got like kind of tagged by a right hand. That was the extent of it. So neither guy, I think, is really like received wear and tear since then. I mean, Max more so than Volk, but he's going to be fine. You kind of the only the only thing that I think I've really learned about either guy in that time is that Max, uh, you, you know, people criticize Max Holloway for his defense. And I mean, fair enough. But I think what we've seen is that Max Holloway like can have good defense when he like respects something and thinks it's actually a threat. And if he doesn't, he'll just rely on he'll he'll still just rely on being tough as shit and just be like, I'll I'll, I'll be fine. I'm Max Holloway. And I think we have seen that like mostly with low kicks because it's weird that he came in with like he came into the second Volk fight with like nine different tactics for. Uh, defending and disincentivizing low kicks. Older fight two. Yeah, older fight two. And then just let Yaya Rodriguez kick him 8,000 times. Yeah, I think if Max just isn't threatened by something mentally, then he's not going to respect it. And I also think Max Holloway is, is one of the like strangest fighters in the sport because there's a lot of people that are the opposite of this. But Max Holloway is has really good defense, but is incredibly defensively irresponsible. Like, he'll be fucking someone up and then just be like, oh, I got clipped by, like, the hardest overhand that person's ever thrown. I'm just fine. Or he's fighting Gair, like, oh, I'm getting reads on this guy, and he's just eating, like, 40 low kicks, but he doesn't care because he doesn't feel them. And even after that fight, I I guess Max Holloway just has immortal legs because Max Holloway still maintains that he won the first Volkanovski fight, and the only rationale you can have behind that is if low kicks don't count, then yes. So in Max's head, they don't count because they don't really hurt him. Like, he was walking around fine after the Yair fight, and Yair was the one who was, who was walking around limping because he fucked up his foot kicking Max. He also fucked that, like, the, the way he throws his low kicks, they're not really designed to actually, like, destroy someone's leg. Yeah. We've never really seen that. It, 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 is, it is a lot more about, like, off-balancing people and fucking with people's entries and then, like, using the feints to set up his hands. Like, I, I, like for, for like the low-kick guy, I've, I've never seen him just, like, actually just add some barbos as someone's leg to pieces. Definitely score, though. <laughs> oh, definitely. Like, the best his leg kicks have looked are either the first Max fight or the Korean zombie fight, where he was just consistently kicking out Korean zombie's leg, but that's a, a lot to do with Korean zombies. Uh, imperfections, mechanically, like, he just kind of puts himself on one foot a lot of the time when going for punches. Like he's he's very stationary and like easy to trick into taking a step at the wrong time, then getting his leg kicked out. While Max is just way harder to read. I don't know. It, it's I expect Max to look um, the best he's ever looked, and I also expect that from Volkanovski. But I think Max Holloway's going to get a finish this time. I think uh, though Volkanovski is the hardest to finish guy maybe in the division. I think if anyone can do it, it's guaranteed Max. So I'm going to say Max is going to fuck him up really badly and then rally uh, after a kind of difficult middle rounds and finish Volkanovski in the fifth. Yeah, like I said, I genuinely uh, am struggling to picture how this fight's going to go, but uh, i got to pick Max. <laughs> and hopefully if, if Volkanovski wins this time, it is clear. Yeah. Well, hopefully Max gets a robbery. 
Oh, yeah. It would be sick if Max won a robbery. That'd be cool, right? Yeah. I mean, everyone deserves one robbery in a trilogy. That uh, that shifts the dynamic a little bit. And we definitely get a fourth fight. Okay, so then... uh, The Izzy Destroyer, Alex Pereira, fighting Sean Strickland, basically trying to put him right in position for a title shot. They got him right below an Israel Adesanya title defense. Not much going on at middleweight at the minute. And... uh, well, Alex Pereira only has like two wins in the UFC over unranked middleweights. Um, I mean, Sean Strickland is on enough of a streak at the minute. If he gets through him, they might simply put him in a title shot because you know it's a it's a story. Um, I think he's probably going to knock Sean Strickland the fuck out. I don't know about you, Christian, uh, but just I. Uh, <laughs> I can't help looking at this fight and just thinking that Sean Strickland's like a whole defensive system being like annoying sparring tricks and janky mitigation stuff, which is incredibly effective for the matchups he's in for the most part at middleweight. Um, I'm just like, so what's going to happen when he fights a like actually like laser accurate and long seasoned counter puncher who is like it doesn't have to land cleanly like partial blocking Alex Pereira is like not blocking at all against most people yeah so I don't know maybe Sean Strickland pulls the wrestling out he's an underrated wrestler it's just not really his thing I can definitely see him being the the like oh no I'm gonna I'm gonna box with with Alex Pereira I think Alex Pereira's MMA specific liabilities are are gonna possibly make the fight winnable for Strickland. I think if the fight was five rounds, I would favor Strickland a little bit, just because he's he's got like more experience in MMA, the rounds are longer, and if you fight a 25-minute fight, that's longer than any kickboxing match Prayer's ever had. And Prayer's cardio hasn't looked perfect at uh, in the UFC. Strickland has fantastic conditioning and fights in like just a really efficient way that he's able to maintain himself very Definitely. well over um, five. But, uh, you know, it's, it's three rounds. So I'm like, you know, even if Alex Pereira doesn't get a knockout, um, you know, like, like even if he just, like, hurt Sean Strickland with just a clipping left hook or flying knee at some point, is that enough to just completely change the shape of a three-round fight in his favor? I, I think that Strickland's mitigation is... I think it's going to be enough mostly like i don't think he's going to get finished but i think prayer is definitely going to have a moment where he hurts strickland is just Pereira's ring craft has looked so shaky in mma and if like really if strickland decides at all to to like go for wrestling aggressively or even just clinch him up against the fence and stall i think that would pay off so much for strickland but I just don't have any reliable way to assume that he's going to do it because he's had matchups where he probably should clinch up more and didn't. But the Uriah Hall fight, you know, he he said it himself, like, oh, I took the coward's way out, which is the thing to do if you're in a late round against an explosive guy that you're kind of worried about fucking you up. So, but also that was later in the fight and he had just spent uh, three rounds like jabbing a very, very tepid Uriah Hall. I feel like you can't just win by a thin margin or, or not even a thin margin, just by like a, a really basic tactic. Like you can't just be jabbing or like, like popping straight shots at Alex Pereira. Like he'll figure you out and start countering you really badly. And he looked really adaptable in his last fight on the feet. I mean, Pereira did. 
like Bruno Silva is a very good fighter and Pereira, though he didn't finish him, like that's that's fucking Bruno Silva for you. Like he's very he's very hard to finish. So I don't know. I think I I lean with you where I'm gonna pick Pereira by knockout. I, I think it's just gonna be a left hook. But Strickland has more than enough tools to make the fight not very competitive, I think, if he fights in the way he should. But I just don't expect him to. I think he's going to try and uh, have like a jabbing contest at range and then try and win a decision because that's what Sean Strickland does. Okay, so then <clears throat> uh, Robbie Lawler's fighting Brian Barberena. Uh Christian, is Robbie Lawler going to win? Yes, I think. Like maybe, right? Um, uh, right. This is just kind of an OG matchup, right? Brian Barberena, and just a, a schlubby Robbie Lawler. You know, he he does more and is willing to push more of a pace, but kind of because he, he he always had to. And I mean, Robbie Lawler looks like weirdly pretty good against Nick Diaz. Um, I think mostly just he had an old slow southpaw who didn't want to take him down. And Brian Barberena, just just really unfortunate how how much he's physically degraded by this point in his career because he's not even that old. Just a series of really unfortunate circumstances have just you know left him at the point where he you know where Matt Brown was still able to keep up with him physically and have a banger with him. No, no, that was a fun fight, but it was also just kind of intensely uncomfortable to watch. It was kind of just like a shade of the fight that both guys could have had in their primes, but they were kind of just like equally degraded. It's kind of just a sloppy, ugly mess. Um, Robbie Lawler also getting up there was on a pretty rough streak before he knocked out the ghost of Nick Diaz, who didn't appear to do any kind of training camp at all. But you know, he's still just like he's still just like crafty and explosive. Despite all of the insane wars and the incredibly long career he's had had a pretty good defensive style that has at least reasonably maintained his like physical durability up to this point in his career. So I'm going to pick Robbie Lawler to just be the more experienced MMA Southpaw boxer dude. Because what, I don't know, is Brian Barberina going to out-wrestle him or beat him in the clinch? Yeah, I was, I was thinking like Barberina is definitely going to try, but Robbie, even now, like he's not easy to grapple. It's just if you're a grappler, he's not going to do much to stop you. Like Colby, he he really didn't do very much at all to defend the takedowns because he was just flustered by Colby throwing a billion punches. And even in the Nick Diaz fight, it was pretty much anytime Nick was throwing punches, Robbie was just defensive. And that's been the story of his career so far. Like anyone or in his career recently is that if someone's just willing to throw, then they can put him off of throwing anything back. And then if you start taking him down, he'll be like, oh, well, okay, I can't counter you because I'm getting taken down. So he just waits his turn. And if you don't let him have his turn, he will never take it himself. But he he did better about that in the Nick Diaz fight. So that's worth noting. And then Barbrain is also way less likely to just put out fucking a bunch of just just volume jabs and like spamming left hooks, left uppercuts, like shifting, doing a bunch of punches. Like Nick Diaz is a uniquely difficult fighter for Robbie Lawler to fight. And even when old and Robbie still won. Also, if, you know, if I thought I could, uh, I thought I could rely on like the Brian Barberena from the Vicente Luque fight to show up. I think I'd probably pick him. 
because he oh, yeah. did he did a bunch of that in that fight, and he was probably up on the cards when he got knocked out in like the last ten seconds. Um, I just don't know that he's going to be able to maintain that against Robbie Lawler, even at this point in Robbie Lawler's career. So yeah, I, I, I'm picking Robbie Lawler. Yeah, I'm gonna say Robbie Lawler by a uh, second round finish. I think it probably goes to decision. Very good chance. I think I just think Barbarian is. Uh, I think Barbarian is like more past it than Robbie Lawler. I think Robbie Lawler hit diminishing returns, and now he's like kind of figuring out how to fight as an old guy. While Barbarina is just past that at this point because he's gotten so fucked up by outside occurrences. It's so depressing. And he was never even close to as athletic as Robbie Lawler in his prime. Nope. It is a sham. I always liked Brian Barbarina. Um, and then opening the main card, Pedro Munoz is fighting Sean O'Malley. <sighs> I don't want to pick Sean O'Malley over Pedro Munoz. So I'm not going to. Um, Pedro Munoz has been outmaneuvered by uh, almost everyone he's fought who has a mobility edge in any way. Uh, Sean O'Malley does not have very good ring craft, but is doing uh, what we call a DVD player screensaver footwork, where you just like uh, move backwards in a straight line and then bounce off the cage and then just move backward, continue to move backwards in the straight line at whatever trajectory you bounced, bounced off of the cage at. Um, is that going to be enough to beat Pedro Munoz at this point? Well, I just have to think about the Chris Moutinho fight where, you know, O'Malley would just move backwards and get kicked as he was walking away. And Pedro is like smaller than Moutinho and has a, they're not smaller, but he has like a different frame, so it might be particularly difficult for him to kick him on exits, or maybe the Moutinho fight kind of prepared O'Malley for handling someone that's going to be kicking him and pressuring him. But also, I don't think the frame's that much different, and Pedro Munoz is a lot better than Chris Moutinho. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. But I think uh, it, it maybe O'Malley could have gotten a little bit. Of, I'm just trying to rationalize a way that O'Malley could win this because it's a difficult fucking matchup for him if he was getting kind of tuned up on exits with low kicks against Chris Moutinho. It's just... But, uh, I'm just thinking, like, Moutinho has longer legs than Pedro. Um, he was also just eating shit more. I think Pedro's probably going to try and move his head a little bit more. Might just get stuck uh, in a mode of trying to defend rather than just walking up, eating shit, and throwing a low kick anyways. You know, he he does uh, love to wait his turn, but I, I just can't see him waiting his turn so much that O'Malley doesn't either gas from, like, kind of delaying Pedro's turn or getting low kicked uh, because he exits irresponsibly or thinks that Pedro's less able to counter than he is. And Pedro doesn't have very good ring craft, but he does come forward and he'll cut you off a little bit. So I think just that enough, that enough might be all it takes to kind of fuck up O'Malley on the back end. And then even in exchanges, like if he starts exchanging for real with O'Malley, uh, O'Malley's going to be a lot faster, but O'Malley's not defensively perfect or anything. And I haven't seen anyone that has the power to knock out Pedro Munoz yet. So it'd be hard for me to imagine Sean O'Malley, who I didn't even really think of as like a hitter until his last fight. 
because you know he people bring him up as a power threat, but he knocked out some elderly people and then volume TKO'd a few people uh, with like really nice shot selection. Like he'd land come uh, almost as perfect as you can get for counters against a few of his last opponents and didn't knock them out in one shot. It still took a, a billion punches. He, he's a volume puncher more so than a, like a strict power guy, but he, he can find good power. Yeah, he's, a, he, he's a, he's a speed and accuracy yeah. guy. As and well. also his hands are very brittle and Pedro Munoz is a hard head and kind of everything about Sean O'Malley is very brittle. Like his, his kicks. All of these reasons are why I'm going to pick Pedro Munoz. But are you, are you going to be surprised if just like, if Pedro is just like too, just too foot slow and like you say, just waits his turn too much and just follows Sean O'Malley around just uh, eating straight punches and, and, just let, and just letting him get off with it? Because I, I, I would like to say no and that he's going to be able to cut him off with kicks and put Sean O'Malley out of position. And, you know, you know we've seen him like get good counters off against people who have significant reach and height advantages against him. You know, he, he hurt Rob Font with a left hook before he submitted him. He dropped Dominic Cruz really badly in the first round before Dominic Cruz rallied to get that fight back because he's like way more tough and experienced and like... Uh, I mean, she's just better than Sean O'Malley. Um, yeah. Uh, no, yeah, f- fuck all that. I'm, no, I'm picking Pedro Munoz by his second round guillotine. Yeah, the only thing that really could happen that would make me think Pedro's going to lose is if he just fell off a cliff for no reason. I mean, it wouldn't be for no reason. Like, he's he's getting up there and he's had a really difficult career. But his last two fights, uh, he looked bad for like separate reasons that are completely disconnected from any ability to lose to Sean O'Malley. Jose Aldo was like, a nightmare got... matchup, and yeah, Aldo is uh, the greatest fighter of all time and one of the best skill for skill fighters to ever live. So he made Munoz look kind of bad, but still didn't even hurt Munoz at any point and didn't get close to finishing him. And though he won wide, he didn't. Uh, make Pedro look useless. He just kind of, I mean, good luck leg kicking uh, in like trying to clip Jose Aldo with, or Jose Aldo with fucking hooks. Like it's just, it's not going to work. Especially when you're that much smaller than him. And then Dominic Cruz got fucked up and was given enough space to kind of make the adjustments. And once again, he's an all-time great fighter. Like he's an all-time great bantamweight. So Really, just O'Malley is a massive step down from his last two losses. And durability-wise, I can't think of someone that's as fragile as O'Malley that he's fought. In his last, like, I mean, I'm looking at I mean, his Frankie Edgar. Uh, record. And the Frankie yeah, Edgar yeah. one is weird because, like, combined with those two, it does, like, we have speculated a little bit that maybe Pedro just respects his elders a little too much because I am, like... Yeah, he shouldn't have lost to Frankie Edgar, but also, um, I'm pretty sure if he had just walked up to Frankie Edgar and tried to kill him, it would have worked. <clears throat> yeah, or do like a single uppercut instead of just being like, oh, I'll just take his really, really light body shots uh, and then low kick him. And then if I hurt him with low kicks, oh, now it's time to start hitting the head. Why would I kick him in the leg again? I already hurt the leg. You can't finish someone with a low kick. Very weird energy from Pedro, despite being such a powerful low kicker. You'd hope he'd be coming into this one 
with, with, with a point to prove with the run he's on. And it's a totally winnable matchup for him. Um, I, you know, I, I do, I do wonder if I can, if I can trust him to just do the right things at this point. Um, but, uh, still, uh, fuck Sean O'Malley. He's not that good. Uh, so he's uh, probably going to lose. And if he wins, then fine. Cause he's going to be a ranked bantamweight and he's not just going to be able to like pick out cans to style on. And he's just going to have to fight, uh, good, good bantamweights. Like this is, by, I think this is by far his most winnable matchup in the top fifteen. It's still a nightmare matchup. Yeah, uh, and most of his ability to win the matchup hinges on Pedro looking bad. I think. Yeah. So. So it's just not Sean O'Malley. If he was a fucking middleweight, oh, he'd be a force. If, if he was at a weight class that didn't have. 15 consecutive ranking spots of his worst matchups in the sport, regardless of weight, then he might uh, do well at, at top bantamweight. <laughs> but that that's not the case. No, it is not. And even if he was more of a physical force, um, he might be able to do okay at featherweight with his style. Um, I think he's just too frail. Yeah, he needs too much muscle milk, and I think Pedro is going to fuck him up. Yep. Uh, like pretty consistently. And even if he beats Pedro really badly in the first two rounds, O'Malley's not going to be able to sustain the pace of beating someone up that hard. And he's going to break his hands if he actually, you know, is like putting power he's on Pedro. Absolutely going to break his hands on Pedro's face. Like, what's best case scenario for O'Malley when it comes to getting close to a finish? Like, fucking up Pedro really badly with like a perfect counter that he breaks his own hand with. And then he has to try and heel hook Pedro. <laughs> like, it's just a rough look. See, so yeah, I'm going to say Pedro by, uh, I don't know, third round knockout feels the most consistent or third round submission maybe. But I could also see Pedro getting him out early. Like two or three low kicks is all it takes to like really establish a threat on a guy like O'Malley, I think. Might be enough to just immediately win the fight against Sean O'Malley. Could be. Simply kick him in his nerve. Yeah, and then uh, that's the main card. Yep. And Headline in prelims. Yeah, we got uh, Brad Riddell versus Jalen Turner. Um, I'm not sure who I'm going to pick, but I, I'm almost certain that Brad Riddell is going to get hurt really badly in the first round. Uh, I'm going to say Brad Riddell Wrestle Clinic. <laughs> okay, let's go. He he loves to wrestle people that are actually dangerous. He does. I mean, he so, does, he, he he takes down all of his opponents. <laughs> Yeah, he is an MMA he fighter. He really is. He's not a, a kickboxer. He just had a, a kickboxing career that was kind of lukewarm, all in preparation so that he could become a wrestleboxer in MMA. I don't appreciate it. I don't like it very much at all, but it's what he's doing, and he can't finish someone to save his fucking life. So Jalen Turner is like hard to finish. He, he's been finished, but you know, by, by fucking Vincente Luque. You know, like that's not a that's not a bad look. You know, you get finished sometimes. If if you fight the fucking hardest hitter in in a division up, division up on short notice, and like yeah, when you when you're young, yeah, he wasn't even that experienced. And in the moment that Jalen Turner got knocked out, he had just landed a clean spinning elbow on Vicente Luque. Yeah. So not only was it like the hardest hitter in the division is also one of the most durable guys up a weight class on short notice when he was like 24. No reason to, for him to expect, oh, this guy will just eat my spinning elbow and then knock me out. <laughs> um, uh, oh, worth noting that he knocked out Jamie Malarkey, who 
could not get knocked out by Rad Riddell. Oh, oh, yeah, good point. That's a nice little bit of MMA math there. Oh, yeah, Brad Riddell, is, I'm not going to say he's a rope fighter, but he kind of is in the first round. He really needs to figure out his opponent to like, and, and and he's not someone who just won't throw while he's figuring out his opponent. Um, but just his shot selection and footwork, I feel like Jalen Turner just being like long and dangerous and fast and having good shot selection and Brad Riddell like kind of starting slow and conceding the back foot. Um, I think he's just like definitely going to get dropped in the first round. Um, and then if he doesn't get finished, he might like get his shit together and win the other two rounds if Jalen Turner takes his eye off the ball. Is this fight going to be a draw? It could be. Every Brad Riddell fight has like a very real chance of being a draw. Although, I, I don't know. I think even though Brad Riddell Wrestle Clinic is like a funny idea, I think I'm more expecting Jalen Turner to hurt Brad Riddell and then not let him off. Because Brad Riddell getting hurt badly by Fiziev and then just being like, I'm done, makes me worry about him with someone that's actually a good finisher if he hurts you, like Jalen Turner. Like Fiziev is, is good at finishing people because he'll fuck you up with a single shot and then he just puts power on you while you're hurt or he'll just knock you out with the shot that hurts you. While Jalen Turner, if he hurts you, he's just gonna he has really good shot selection and great killer instinct. And he's he's just reliable in that regard. Yeah, I mean Brad Riddell, he got dropped in the first round by Drew Dober and worked his way back into that fight. And you know, Drew Drew Dober's, you know, he's dangerous early. He's a good finisher. Yeah, and Riddell's had difficult first rounds in like all of his UFC fights except for the Jamie Malarkey fight. And that was like a worse Jamie Malarkey too. So like looking at at his record, I see a bunch of people that are crazy good in the first round that he somehow navigated, but none of them are as good of actual finishers as Jalen Turner. They just have the explosive factor. So like Alex De Silva, Magomed Mustafaev, and Drew Dober are maybe the top three most dangerous people in the first round, uh, just on power threat and speed threat and like single dynamic shot selection threat. In the entire unranked lightweight. Oh, you're right, Christian. We do need to, we do need to match up Brad Riddell with Terence McKenney. Yes, we do got to put him against Terence McKenney. Win or lose. Yeah, win or lose. That's just a good fight to make, and it, it fits the theme. It does. And then they give him Fiziev, who's kind of the same thing. Yeah, who who then uh, just incredibly patiently dismantled him and then knocked him out in the third round. But there's a lot of X, mm-hmm. a lot of X factors around that fight, and Fiziev's. Very good. Yeah. Um, th- this is like the the most unlikely matchup they've given Riddell because normally they just give Riddell, or they like want to give Riddell the short guys or people that are somewhat similar in height to him that he can just box with and uh, and like get fucked up by, but they're not good finishers. So it kind of allows him a lot of space to make reads. I don't think Jalen Turner is going to give him the space. I think Jalen Turner being very long and good at using his reach is going to, I think it's, I think you're going to fuck Brad Riddell up, kind of. I just think Jalen Turner has the momentum, and MMA is so momentum-based, where Riddell, coming off a loss, is just going to come out looking tentative and then get cracked really hard by just a looping straight or like a tight left hook and then get hunted down against the fence while he's like trying to recover. Or he'll like shoot in on the hips and get guillotined. I don't know. Jalen Turner. <clears throat> Jalen Turner's a good striker, but... You wait until he meets a real MMA fighter like Brad Riddell. 
Uh, also, I'm not sure Jalen Turner's finished anyone close to as durable as Brad Riddell. Um, Jamie Malarkey's pretty durable. Malarkey is definitely durable, but he's been finished before. He has. And I, I mean, I guess Riddell did, but he, he, he L stepped into a wheel kick. Like, it, it'd be like that sometimes. I, I definitely have a pick that I'm confident in. I, I am confident that Brad Riddell's not going to finish the fight. Like, he's, he's not going to win by finish if he does win. Okay, then. Um, and then next fight, uh, short notice at welterweight, uh, we got Jim Miller versus Donald Cerrone. This was supposed to be Jim Miller versus Bobby Green. I'm kind of chill with this because, like, uh, Bobby Green was definitely going to win easily. And, um, like, what? Well, like, Bob, what the fuck? He, he, even is that matchmaking? Like, it's, like I love Jim Miller, and it's like two, two like great lightweight journeymen uh, getting matched up. But like, what? How, how are they gonna like? Uh, just put Bobby Green straight back, straight back into the same matchups he was already getting after he uh, saved a uh, main event against like the guy who's supposed to be next in line for the title. So I'm, so I'm chill with this. Donald Cerrone versus Jim Miller. They fought eight years ago, 2014, I think. And uh, we, were re- we, we had occasion to talk recently about, um, I think, you know, I think this was whatever card that Donald Cerrone versus uh, Joe Lozon was originally scheduled for, where we talked about shotness arcs for fighters and you know matchups becoming more winnable than they would have been at certain points, depending on uh, fighters, you know, like the the kind of trajectory of each fighter's physical degradation in the interim between them fighting each other again. And uh, for that reason, I am going to pick Jim Miller by first round knockout because Jim Miller also old as fuck and has fought a million times, but he kind of came in with some okay ideas in the first cowboy fight. Like, you know, he was trying to just push Donald Cerrone back, go to the body, uh, counter while uh, Cowboy was kicking. He did, like, he multiple times caught Cowboy on one leg with big, like, looping left hands and uh, and that sneaky right hook that he's famous for, like, while uh, Cowboy was throwing knees and low kicks and stuff. But um, uh, Donald Cerrone kept doing a good job of, like, interrupting Jim Miller's entries with the... Uh, the famous Donald Cerrone intercepting knee to the body. It's like his one anti-pressure tool and it just worked really easily because he like landed it like three times and Jim Miller was way more tentative about going forward and it just forced him into a like neutral space kickboxing match with Donald Cerrone that he wasn't going to win. Um, so I'm like, at this point, given Donald Cerrone's recent form, can he just like stop Jim Miller just pushing him back and immediately fucking him up. Um, and even if Jim Miller doesn't do that, can Donald Cerrone even win just like a mid-range kickboxing match with Jim Miller at this point? I'm going to say no. Donald Cerrone looked really bad in his last few fights. Yeah, I'm looking at Cerrone's record right now, and since the Ali Quinta fight that he won, he has only won one match, and it was a grappling match against RDA, where he won by armbar in overtime. In 2020, I did not know that that happened. Yeah, that that is his only win since then. He, he got that one back spiritually, then I guess. Yeah, yeah, and admittedly, he's been you know he's been fighting 
good competition. Well, here's the thing. He like he always would have lost to Conor McGregor, Tony Ferguson, um, Gaethje. Those were just like you, you know, those are just fights that he shouldn't have been in, particularly all in a row when he was getting stopped in all of them. Um and, and Pettis beat him once in his like when they were both prime. And then Morono just Morono's like the type of guy that's gonna win like that. It is, but this, but but like you know, we're, the Nico Price and Alex Morono fights to the point where you're just like, oh no, Donald Cerrone is done. He like he just wouldn't have lost to these guys if he was like any version of like actual Donald Cerrone. And all of the times that he went on a three fight skid before, it was just like because you know, Donald Cerrone loses to the guys that he loses to. He just like there's not no version of Donald Cerrone that really would have beat uh, Masvidal or Darren Till. Maybe he could have beat Darren Till if he didn't get knocked out in the first round, but just the chances of him getting knocked out in the first round are just so high. Yeah, and and Darren Till just game plan for him. He's like, oh, I'm a southpaw. Just walk him at the fence and blast him. Like anyone that actually goes into a fight with Cerrone, thinking I'm gonna pressure him and and put power on him, just wins. And if you're a southpaw, it's double that. I mean, uh, to an extent, but at this point in his career, it really seems like it is kind of just as black and white as that. And uh, uh, Jim Miller coming off of a couple decent knockout wins against Cans. So I'm just going to pick him to have the, 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 the confidence and like recent experience knocking people out to just run up to Donald Cerrone and kill him. Yeah, what what bothers me is that he, like, just like the way he knocked out his last two opponents, because it, it's just like not shot selection that I expect Cerrone to be walking into. Like Cerrone's not gonna do a what what was like an axe kick into getting cracked really fucking hard by a counter as he's putting his leg down. Well, like I say, Donald like, Cerrone he, got clipped by a right hook on one leg multiple times in the first fight. He could just take it back. And it's just like, what if that happens once and he just gets buzzed and doesn't get his shit together and then Jim Miller throws like one left hand to the body? Fight's over. Yeah, very true. I mean, maybe Cerrone will look a little bit better since he hasn't actually had an MMA fight since uh, mid-2021. Like, this is one of the longer breaks he's ever taken from MMA. And I mean, he's been in training camps trying to fight Lozon for a while, but he hasn't actually had the fight. So maybe Cerrone will look a little bit rejuvenated just <laughs> through a little little break from getting his ass beaten. But I, I think I'm inclined to agree uh, that Jim Miller's just going to... Like, his being old arc is is just, like, at a higher point than Cerrone. But then again, Cerrone, realistically, I think, also might just be able to pull out a head kick and knock out Miller because Miller is is still old. Yeah, we can't forget. And like, they might just have the same fight again. <laughs> Donald Cerrone might just still be like quicker and more creative in open space than Jim Miller, and and simply kick him in the body a bunch of times and then kick him in the head and knock him out. Jim Miller is definitely. Uh, he was never at his best, as good as Donald Cerrone was at his best, and. When it comes to dynamicism, like or like Donald Cerrone just has that edge, even now I think, because if you know, say Miller's actually tries to pressure, I think Cerrone's 
intercepting knee might just be enough to off-put Miller. Uh, and then if it goes to the ground, well, the first you know, Cerrone has looked worse in the grappling in, like since the RDA grappling match, but he got submitted by good guys uh, that are kind of like fast grapplers. Like they'll they'll go fuck you up really quickly while Miller's more of a like MMA position and then find a good submission type grappler. I I, th- I think if they actually start grappling, Cerrone might have an edge. Yeah, probably. Um, all of that being said, Jim Miller is just like, he is a weird opportunist who will just like jump an arm bar and then it won't work. And he'll be like, well, I'm tired now. I guess I'll lose on bottom. Um, like, I don't know, it's weird. Like, so, sometimes I think of Jim Miller as like, uh, like a boring wrestle boxer guy because he kind of looks like one. And then I'm like, oh no, he's like, the, he's like, he's like a weird, like, kicks and submission guy. <laughs> yeah, he just so happens to have hands recently. Um, I'm still picking Jim Miller though. Fuck it. Yeah, I'm going to pick Jim Miller by first round finish. And then, you know, before that we got Ian Gary versus Gabe Green, the fight I have the least to say about on the entire card. Uh, I mean, Ian Gary's probably going to win. Um, Gabe Green just kind of a bit of an unstructured banger. Uh, Ian Gary... I mean, he needs to like lose the whole Conor McGregor thing, but he's like probably an okay welterweight. He's probably not far off top fifteen. Of top fifteen, he just needs to realize that he's like not a fucking enter the matrix, nuke you with a single counter punch guy. He's like uh, just a like neutralizing outboxing guy. Uh, that being said, Gabe Green is like mostly southpaw. And just like lunges in behind like big old hooks a lot of the time. So that's probably a perfect recipe for Ian Gary to do the exact fucking reverse Conor McGregor fade back open side straight counter and just knock Gabe Green out with that like he did in his first fight. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to pick that to happen. Uh, I'm going to pick Gabe Green through grit and determination to break Ian Gary in the third round. Okay, let's go. But also, I agree. I, I was right as you were mentioning the fight. I was like, oh, Ian Gary is might do the fade back straight in this fight. That's open here. Okay, another fight that I have the least to say about uh, Brad Tavares versus uh, Drikas Duplessis. Um, I don't know. Is Duplessis going to knock out Brad Tavares? What do you think, Christian? Yeah, I, I don't. I also don't have very much to say about it, just because I don't think there is much to say. Well, let's not talk about uh, it. Man. Who cares? But I hope Ratavares wins. Yeah, I mean, Tavares uh, is is more dynamic, and Tavares looked bad his last few fights. So, do with that information what you will. And then um, Uriah Hall is fighting Andre Muniz, and I feel like everyone is going to be really tempted to just pick Andre Muniz to armbar all of his opponents exactly the same way that he did the last two where he does the cool setup where he like falls off the back and sets up the armbar that way um, but I would like to remind everyone that Jacare was mightily shot and had just had the fight with Kevin Holland where he gassed out in like a minute of wrestling and got knocked out with a breakdancing move um, and uh, Eric Anders is like big and strong but not very good and Uriah Hall has 
pretty good defensive jiu-jitsu and Andre Muniz is also not very good. So I am going to pick Uriah Hall by knockout, but uh, he might get armbarred. I, Are you going to pick Andre Muniz by armbar? Yeah, I'm going to pick Andre Muniz by armbar because Uriah Hall got submitted by Ronda Rousey, submitted by Ronda Rousey like 10 years ago on Ultimate Fighter. And he was he was like joking, like, damn, I just got submitted by by Ronda Rousey. Uh, but it was also like a playful joking because he was like, yeah, I actually just got submitted by Ronda Rousey by an armbar. So, in all, you know, Uriah Hall is a very good grappler and he's very consistent. Uh, at being what he is as a grappler. Yeah, he's like if if you can like if you can really get on top of him and fuck him up then he gets supremely uncomfortable but in purely jiu-jitsu positions he can just like defend submissions no problem basically. Yeah, I I just kind of think that Muniz is aggressive enough about pursuing submissions that he's going to be able to find the armbar and it's not that difficult to get your eye holes back. And if it was just his armbar defense, I, I was having the respect. I would think that your eyes got it. Cause I wouldn't see him be able to get put in the armbar position, but the specific way that Muniz gets to the armbar from the back, I think is going to be replicable uh, against your eye hall. He's going to do a spin kick and, and he's just going to circle around to the back and then he's going to armbar immediately. Yeah. Yeah, or like Muniz will like throw a kick and then Uriah will defend it and bounce onto the fence and just get like he'll Muniz stuck under and take the back, something like that. Like, I if he takes Uriah's back, I will be like seventy percent confident that he's about to armbar him. Um, do you have anything to say about these other two fights? Uh, Macy Barber is probably going to beat up Jessica I. Very true, uh, but also Macy Barber has looked kind of wonky aside from the like progression that she's made. Like her her hands are still bad. Yeah, she she's not a good boxer. Uh, and Jessica is also not a good boxer, but Jessica's jab is better. I I'm saying tentatively. I, I can see Jessica just getting cross countered though and bullied against the fence and ruined in the clinch. And then for Jessica Rose Clark versus Julia Stoliarenko, uh, it's a banger, but they are probably going to grapple each other a lot. Yeah. Like, if it's just a striking match, that's a sick fight. But I don't think it's just going to be a, gra- uh, rest- or a striking match. I think they're going to end up doing way more grappling than they should. It's probably going to be a messy fight that goes to decision. Okay, that's the card. Now, real quick at the end, which, uh, we're going to say some bits about last week's card. Uh, Armin Saryukian versus Mateusz Gamrot. So, uh, yeah, this is another consecutive main event that I feel pretty strongly was a bad decision. Actually, a lot more than uh, Calvin Cater versus Josh Emmett. I think this was kind of a robbery. Um, I actually scored every round for Armin Saryukian when I went back and watched it. Um, and I, and it's not even really one of those ones where I'm like, oh, I get why the judges went the way that they did because... Again, this is one of those where yeah, Gamrot were—he was initiating a lot of wrestling exchanges where he, where a lot of the times he was the one who had the initiative, but was almost never able to sustain any real positional control. And uh, Sarukian was able to mostly stay on top of the scrambles. And um, I guess I'm 
kind of willing to entertain that I'm like slightly biased about the outcome of this fight just because uh, despite like like regardless of how you score it uh, it was kind of just the exact fight that uh, me and Ben Cohn described last week in that it was uh, Matej Gamrot versus Guram Katataladze again like exactly um, it was just Gamrot spamming takedowns a lot and you know putting his opponent in states of defense but not really capitalizing it offen- capitalizing on it offensively that much and uh, the other guy kicking the absolute fuck out of Gamrot's body um, that may be a factor as to why the judges were against Starman in this fight because MMA judges famously bad at scoring body damage and I kind of think the body kicks were the most uh, impactful strikes of the entire fight um, Gamrot also landed a good right hand on Sarukian in the fourth round that like spun him round a little bit, but that was also the round where Sarukian dropped Gamrot with a spinning back fist. So, however, in the fuck, the, the judges unanimously gave Gamrot the last three rounds. I don't really fucking understand. What do you think, Christian? Uh, yeah, I agree. I think it was a robbery. <laughs> like, for like pretty clear. But in the same vein, like, I'm not. I'm not that upset about it because they both looked about the same level of fighter. It's just Gamrot is worse in the matchups, like in particular. So I think they do about the same against the top of, of lightweight. And I'm, I want both to be around there, but it it wasn't it, like, we learned nothing about either guy over five rounds. I like you, we, like you guys kind of predicted the fight completely. And then, like the same thing happened just Sarukian did like the the Sergio Pettis Kyoji knockdown that's that's pretty much all interesting that happened uh it looked like Gamrot kind of Gamrot's boxing looked better than it did in the CDF fight but I think that's just due to Sarukian having less depth and less initiative whenever he's actually trying to put his hands on you Sarukian's just very cautious and it it's not something that helped him in this fight I think that both guys could have done more to, I mean, of course, both could have done more to, you know, make a win more clear, but Sarukian did kind of all he should have needed to do to win very clearly. Yeah. And they both did all the things that you would expect them to do as well. Yeah. Yeah. And Gamrot could have done some shit. He, he could have, uh, like worked better on like intercepting attacks rather than just having good takedown defense. And, uh, Sarukian could have, you know, tried to work his wrestling into punching offense more. But on the ground, it was a lot of stalemating just because they're, they're both very comparable grapplers. Every time either one initiated any, any kind of grappling exchange, there was just a dynamic as fuck scramble and then they'd be back on the feet. Yeah. The, the, the scrambles were sick, but they weren't productive no. <laughs> aside from getting both guys tired. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, both their cardio held up over five, which isn't surprising about Gamrot, but was a little surprising about Sarukian. But I'm glad that Sarukian has the cardio to maintain that. Uh, that's, that's like a good sign going forward. But overall, it's as lukewarm of a five-round fight you can get that's actually a really good fight. Yeah, it was a good fight. Um, and I wasn't too mad about it because it was pretty close. You know, it was at least competitive. I just still scored every round for Armin Sarukian. And it's kind of like, I, I don't think 
uh, a fight like that really affects Sarukian's trajectory that much. And he's only 25. And, um, you know, Gamrot, he's like in his early 30s now. If he's going to make a run, like, just just put him in there now. Um, and, you know, Armin Sarukian should still be fighting good fighters around that area in the division. One development I would have liked to see, I would li- would have liked to see from Armin Sarukian, which I kind of touched on, which is, which uh, I thought lost him the Islam Makachev fight, was just that he kind of Shevchenko's himself a little bit, where he just has to beat his opponent everywhere, or he's not winning. And this was another fight where, even though he was doing well, just wrestling defensively and then mostly tuning his opponent up on the feet, he would just insist on going for takedowns, which, like we were saying, were leading to scrambles that, even if they weren't productive for Gamrod, definitely weren't productive for Sarukian either. And, you know, definitely contributed to whatever it was the judges saw that gave Gamrod those three rounds. So, again, it'd just be, it'd be nice to see a fighter who is clearly so skilled and well-rounded just be able to apply that with a little bit more strategic awareness. But he's still young and he's getting better with every fight. So I think the future's still bright for Armin Sarukian. Yeah, and it was his first fight at a different camp. Mm-hmm. First five-rounder. They're pretty much all good looks. And, you know, people are always going to look back on this and be like, oh, yeah, well, you know, he didn't really lose that fight. It's whatever. This is what his, his second loss, his other one being a, a closely contested fight against Islam Makachev in his fucking UFC debut. He's a solid fighter. Oh, this was also one, a, fighter to, a fight to add to the um, uh, why you should kick wrestlers folder. Uh, a, because uh, Gamrot uh, kept going uh, southpaw to set up his low single, which I would assume is just because like it provides the shortest path for his lead hand to his opponent's lead leg. Um, if anyone who actually knows stuff about wrestling wants to weigh in on, on that, I'd be interested. But uh, every time he went southpaw, uh, Sarukian would just fucking slam him with a big old right kick to the body uh, as soon as that like open side was established. Um, and there was even a point where uh, Sarukian threw a spinning back kick to the body as Gamrot went to shoot in for his low single and he got fucking spinning back kicked in the face. So that was neat. You kick wrestlers, it works. Yeah, and then uh, we had Shavkat just like easily dominating Neil Magny and then finishing him once Magny got tired and kind of stopped fighting chokes. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if, if we called the main event uh, accurately, I mean, I'm pretty sure last week you literally said Neil Magny is uh, not going to look like he has a reach advantage, even though he will. And then he's going to end up in the clinch, but he's going to get taken down out of the clinch and then submitted with a front choke. And yeah, that happened. Um, this was just one of those fights that Neil Magny loses. It's just really easy to predict a fight that Neil Magny's going to lose. And Shafkat has been so consistent about uh, winning, even when he looks different in fights. Like, Shavkat can fight different matchups and he'll look different, but he's very consistent in that if you kind of figure out how his game works, you can just know what he's going to do in, like, a broad uh, spectrum type of way. So, like, Magni, he just goes forward, and if you just go forward at Magni, he'll take himself down um, and get scared of you, especially if you're a power threat. Like, he took himself down by throwing a kick at a guy that was pressuring him against the fence. Then he fell to the floor, and then he tried to upkick, and then if you try and upkick Shavkat, he's going to pass your legs and then start fucking up from top. 
And, you know, like good on Magny for using his length to kind of like not allow much ground and pound, but it just wore him out. And it really doesn't matter if you delay the inevitable, if the inevitable is still inevitable. Yeah, I mean, on oh. that note, when Shevkat ended up on top in like the first 30 seconds, I was like, oh, he's going to knock Neil Magny out like now. Yeah. Like you, you could tell who was going to win by who went behind the black line within the first five seconds. There was just like kind of no way for, for Magny to come back from it at that point. And Shavkat is a snowball fighter and Neil Magny loses to snowball fighters every time. So not that much to say, but good on Shavkat for winning the fight that he was very, very supposed to win. But, you know, he passed the test. He's in there at welterweight now. Yeah, there, there's been people that are about as hyped as him that have lost the same test. Absolutely. Or looked a lot worse winning it. Um, so yeah, he should. he's probably going to be around the top 10 now. Um, I think like the winner of Jeff Neal versus Vicente Luke or something like that will be good for Shavkat next. Yeah, and uh, then Josh Friesian knocked out Alan Badeau on the ground. It was a messy fight. It was a stupid uh, fight. I don't even know if we forth. really need to talk about it, but it was funny. We got to mention it. Was a, it was the it was the third fight on the main. Card. I mean, I guess. <laughs> um, I guess also one of your reads from last week playing out, which was that Josh Parisian did go for the spinning back fist, but then got like counter collar tie hammer fisted by Alan Budo as he was recovering. Yeah. Always got to watch out for the collar tie hammer fist when you're going for the spinning back yeah, fist. Yeah, that, that's just you know it's day one shit, you know. Then got dropped by that, then got his shit together, and uh, Alan Boudot got tired, and Parisian was able to just like stay on top of him, even though he was also fucking knackered. Uh, it was a sloppy yeah, fight. it was as much an exhaustion TKO as it was an actual TKO. Yeah. Um, yeah, Alan Boudot just not long for the UFC, unfortunately. Um, Tiago Moises submitted Christos Giagos, just uh, took his back in a transition and uh, choked him while standing. Yeah, Giagos landed a single punch that kind of off-put Moises, and then Moises is like, okay, I'm going to cling to you as tightly as I can. Uh, and and then just fought the hands for like a minute and a half and finally got the choke. It was the, the least... Uh, it was like the least interesting finish on the card just because it was, oh, he's he has the back. He's either going to finish him or they're going to ride out the round in this position, and then he finished him, so that was cool. Uh, Umar Nurmagomedov had a very, very bland uh, decision win over Nate Manis. And then I thought um, Adolfo Vieira actually had a, a pretty good look in a, a horrible losing effort against Chris Curtis where he like got uh, absolutely outclassed, but uh, it, he knows how to fight a softball. Yeah. Um, That's important to know. he just like kept to it and didn't get finished by like pretty much the highest quality opponent that he's had. There was no reason to expect him to win this fight or even to do particularly well at all outside of just a random meme sub, which isn't even, isn't even Hadolfo's game as a, as a pure jiu-jitsu player. There's, no, there's no, no real reason to expect him to just like stand in guillotine you if you like duck weird or off of throwing a punch or something. Um, but you know, this fight gives me like reassurance that Adolfo Vieira is not going to have the fluffy Hernandez fight again. 
So that's cool. Good for him. He's still, uh, he's probably still too old to really like get excited about having a big future in MMA, but he can stick around and win some fights. And Chris Curtis, he's the best fighter he's going to be. He's looking really good. I'd taken out some really high quality opposition for like someone just coming into the UFC and fight, fighting unranked guys. He's got an extensive regional career. Just get him in some like meaningful top 15 matchups. Yeah. I think Chris Curtis is like a nightmare matchup for almost everyone at the top of middleweight, except for Robert Whitaker. So just duck Rob and then beat Izzy by being durable, having annoying defense and hitting the body and being Southpaw. Um, do we really need to hit anything from these prelims? Kind of not really. Uh, I just want to touch on a few. I things. mean, Ol- Olberg dusted to Fonda Chukwe. That was cool. Olberg's getting better. Still pretty green. Yeah. Um, um, Beck A. If I remember, the kind of won a robbery over TJ Brown, but that happens. TJ Brown doesn't win by very like wide margins, and it was a competitive fight. Uh, Sergey Morozov, Holly and Paiva was really good. It was a matchup between a guy who can't stop eating left hooks and a guy who can't stop eating straight rights. And then they started working in like jabbing to set up the left hook or countering the jab that he's using to set up the left hook. There was a few like cute dynamics and then Morozov kind of pulled through. Um, JP buys. JP buys will not stop getting cross countered. In the, in the first thirty seconds, he got hit really badly by a cross counter. He just has like the worst mechanics I could possibly imagine for fighting someone that doesn't overhand right, and he only fights people whose main offense is like a, a good cross counter and then follow up offense. I don't even know if that's Cody Durden's thing. That's just what you do against JP no. Buys at this point. Yeah, like you, you don't really get to the UFC unless you can do a cross counter. So or you can at least learn and, one in camp. Yeah, you'd be like, oh, this guy's lost the same way like fucking 11 times. I'll just do that again. He's been dropped like eight times in three UFC fights. Yeah, it's not happening for JP Byers, unfortunately. Yeah. And then we might as well mention the last two fights just because... Might as well. Yeah, uh, Kelleher got submitted immediately by Mario Batista. Yeah, good performance from Batista, but a thing that has happened to Brian Kelleher. Mm -hmm. And uh, Demopolis kind of won a robbery in my opinion i i watched the fight live and was like oh didn't you fray won i was wrong and then they're like oh yeah no demopolis won so that was a little weird to me so there was like three robberies on the card or like arguable robberies one almost inarguable robbery yeah which just happened to be the most meaningful fight on the card um so yeah that's us for this week as always, if you enjoyed this content and all the other great stuff the Fight Site puts out, please consider supporting us on Patreon. A pledge of just $3 gains access to a huge co- library of really high-quality analytical fight content. And then a pledge of $5 gains access to a Discord server. We have a huge community with really interesting fight, really interesting fight fans from a variety of different backgrounds, always having great discussions, and we're really active in the chats. You can come talk to us, talk to other staff members. Hang out in the voice chats on fight nights. Always good fun. Just come support the fight site. Hang out. This has been the Forbidden Technique podcast. And you can catch us next week where we'll be recapping all of the meaningful stuff from this upcoming card as well as previewing next week's UFC fight night card headlined by a really interesting lightweight contenders bout between Rafael Dos Anjos and Rafael Fazeev. Should be a banger. 
We'll catch you guys then. Peace. Later.